0: today heavenly father we are grateful that all must be well that in in our lives the myriad of circumstances and situations in which we sit today that we need to hear the truth father would you do what you do best this morning would you be god in our lives And, and would you do what we desperately need done and that's to remind us that we're not and to display for us your Son, crucified, risen, reigning, building, expanding, displaying his kingdom in and through us as your people. We need you to give us a picture, the, the vision for that, the strength to do that. We need each other to, to help reinforce these things that the world doesn't understand and fights against, and would you take our hearts and And turn them and make them pliable and make their disposition amenable to you this morning. And so give us ears to hear. Hearts to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. um, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to look at this this passage. I have one week here to, to fill in before Bill gets back. And, you know, it's how do you pick one exact passage but this one i'll explain a little bit about it but this is a great picture a great motivation for living out the gospel a great picture for us as we think about being god's people and living that out in the world around us this gives us some images that are helpful that are encouraging to kind of build a reality a a picture, a vision that we need to see day in and day out, even as we hear the news reports, as we look at our own lives and our own hearts. So, two Corinthians chapter two, verses twelve through seventeen. This is God's word. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. I'm not sure why, but on Christmas Day this last year, I found myself reminiscing on a, a summer I spent in, in Budapest, Hungary uh, in 1988, just a, a couple of years ago when I was a a younger man, and, uh, for some reason I decided to pull all my photos out for my summer there. I was on staff, or I was on a project with Campus Crusade and it was a missions project and the, the summer's goal and aim was to meet people and share the gospel with them. And so I pulled my photos out and was boring my family with them, but I was, really enjoying going through them. And I came across a, a number of photos, photos of individuals we met and people we saw, and of course the team and the surroundings. But one particular photo that that, that I remembered taking and pulling out is this photo right here. Can you, can you see that? Uh, we don't do overhead things or projection, I always show you, but it's really simple. It's a picture of my desk, a desk in the little apartment that we were staying in for that summer in Budapest. And on it is a number of things, and they are different kind of artifacts, as it were, of that summer that kind of marked that summer for me. Very crucial things that are here uh, one is a journal and at the top of the journal is a title that says war stories as we're Writing down taking notes of what had happened and what got had done throughout the summer As we were there I have a book that's there the pursuit of god by a.w. Tozer that was a part of my reading for the summer uh, I, I see a cup of tea. I don't know at some point I transitioned to the, the other side of coffee But I have a cup of tea. I also have something called a cassette player with headphones some of you might know what that is others of you might not know what that is but there's a cassette player and a cassette and I'm I'm pretty sure this cassette it had on one side Phil Keggy and the other side Twyla Paris (laughs) you know it doesn't label me or point me and some of you going I don't know who those people are but anyway that's that okay there's some other things on this picture but there's two central items Two central items. One is a is a is a diagram, uh, an image of 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 the gospel that we would use when we were there. We would meet or just meet people and talk with them, and we'd draw out the gospel. It was like a bridge diagram or whatever, just to explain the gospel. Much of our conversation was really just talking about the existence of a God. This was before Hungary was open, and many of the people we interacted with had no real knowledge. Had never heard a good explanation of the existence of a world beyond just what you could see and touch. Indeed, as we talked about God and we talked about this, we have a picture here of this, and it's just great memories. But the other item is my Bible. And my Bible is open to this passage that we're looking at this morning. We studied throughout the course of that summer, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 5, verse 21. And I still remember the images and the motivation and the encouragement that it brought me and our team personally. As this passage opens with this picture of a triumphal procession, of a king leading in battle, leading, uh, having won and having conquered. And this imagery as it sustained us throughout the course of the summer was important, was significant. I love this and I thought this morning we'd share and we'd look at this together. You might be familiar with this passage, with with this book, these letters that Paul wrote. And in this particular case, as he's writing to the Corinthian church, there's a, he takes a detour at this point in verse 14. And the detour is to, to go into and to more fully explain his motivation and what sustains him in ministry. Up to this point and then following this point in chapter 7, he really gives an explanation for his, his traveling. There was some tension in his relationship with the church in Corinth and they thought he was going to return and see them, but he chose not to because of some of the tension that was there. He didn't go visit them. So he's trying to give an explanation up to this point of why he didn't travel. Why he didn't go see them? And he sent Titus, as we saw in the first part of this text we looked at, it, he sent Titus with a letter to try to instruct them and to correct them in some areas. And so he writes to them. And at this point, he, he switches over in verse 14 to give an explanation, a picture a vivid understanding of what motivates him, what sustains him in gospel ministry. There's much that could be said about his relationship to the people in Corinth. There was certainly a lot of tension that was there. There were challenges. But his hope, even as there were those who had come in to try to divide him and the church away from him to drive a wedge between him and his teaching in the church in Corinth, he sought to bring them back together in the letters that he had sent to them. You can read the first letter that he wrote and the problems there. and this letter, as he writes to them, he's trying to provide a defense for his own ministry there. But more than defense, although it is that, it's an explanation, it's a transparent picture of what motivates one in the gospel. What motivates a person to sustain a life living for Christ, living internally in terms of their inner world, living outwardly to a world outside with this gospel informing each part of their lives. It's a picture of that. And it's set in contrast to those who were there that he calls peddlers of the word of God. Those who did it purely and only for money. He says, here's my motivation. Here's what drives me. This is what sustains me in my gospel ministry. And as much as this is autobiographical about the apostle to the Gentiles and his place. And the status, if you will, in building, establishing his kingdom in the Gentile world. The beauty of it is we read it, we see a model that we can follow, not exactly in the same way, but a model that we can follow about what ministry looks like. What does it look like to live lives of faith? What does it look like to live out the gospel? What does it look like to follow this king who is triumphant and to live for him? And so that's what He is addressing here. The, the setting that we're, we see here is the setting and the imagery is, is clear as he sets up this, this part, this defense of his ministry. He opens up with this situation as he describes that he's in trust and he's preaching the gospel. And there was a, a door that was opened for him by the Lord, but his spirit was conflicted. It wasn't at rest. He's waiting for Titus. And he's waiting for Titus to return with the report of how did the church respond to his message? How did the church respond to the letter that he had sent? And so much so, he's so conflicted that he can't go on with fruitful ministry. He has to leave Troas and he has to go to Macedonia to get the message, to meet with Titus to find out. And so it's in the midst of, of difficulties and struggles, of, of wrestling, of wondering what's going to happen to that church. Are they going to stand? Is this break between me and them going to be permanent? How will they live out this truth that I have given to them? Will they? It's in the midst of this that he gives us this image, the image of the triumphal procession, along with it, these images of the fragrance and the aroma. This triumphal procession, it's something that we can see, and if we're certainly not in that cultural world, but for them this would be very much a part of the cultural fabric. That that for them, the, the view or the picture of a... a a triumphant king or general coming through the, the streets, processing through, would be something they would see and would be something that they would know. It might be akin to our side or view of a, of a parade for a, a football team or whatever that had won. The, the components of this procession, though, are quite different. The components of this procession, this triumphant procession, involved things like the spoils of war. You know, metals, precious metals and jewelry and different things that have value would be brought in this procession as well. There'd be incense bearers that would precede the the king or the general as they would come before him with this fragrant aroma to remind all those there of who indeed is the one who has conquered. As well in this procession would be those who had been conquered. There would be captives that would be come along with them and these captives were being led to the, the temple where they would be sacrificed to demonstrate the power of the, the god of this particular king or general over and against this other god. So they're on their way to death and also you might find in this procession those who'd been liberated. Those from this homeland who were brought and they were a part of this train. And so this is the picture that Paul is depicting and one is leading out in front. There's a triumphal procession. But accompanying this is is not just something you can see, but something you can smell. Throughout this whole text is this fragrant scent that's a part of the triumphal procession. As well, there's an aroma and the two distinct words tell us about two different Aspects of what you can spell the the fragrance is a is a picture of this triumphal procession. It's a it's a picture. It's emitted by the incense bears as they come before the the king, and it and it smell. They could smell it, and it would remind the parties present of of truth that was important. At the same time, there's there's an aroma that he talks about, this aroma of Christ to God, and that's the imagery of sacrificial imagery. He slips and he he changes that just a bit. It's still something that can be smelled. So those are the images, this triumphal procession, and the fragrance and the aroma that accompanies this procession that's connected. And as we look at these images today, as we think about the context, there's, there's three things I think will be Important for us, it will be encouraging for us, that will help sustain us in our lives of living out our faith, of living the gospel out in our lives. Three important pieces as we seek to live out the unseen reality, to make it visible to the world around us, those that we live in the midst of as well as each other. And these are the three things we want to look at. First is the fragrance here, the fragrance that divides. Secondly, the aroma that points And thirdly, the king that leads. The fragrance that divides, the aroma that points, and the king that leads. The imagery here is strong, and and this imagery of smell, the fragrance that's there. This victory procession, as I mentioned, these incense bearers would bring with them this incense, and it would send a clear message to those who are there. You think about the senses that God has given to us to take in the truth. Our, our eyes tell us things, our ears tell us things. In this case, our, our senses tell us things. My wife was just telling about a flower that she was just drawn to purchase, and it was beautiful, but it was the smell that drew her into purchasing it. Our, our smells tell us something about the surroundings in which we live, and tells us something about the environment that we are in. This last week, I was on a run, and in the middle of the run, I, I came into this a setting where there must have been a lot of, of flowers because all of a sudden I was just kind of hit by this, this, this wave of just kind of the scent of these flowers and it told me something that, that we're in spring. It told me something about the world and what you oh it's springtime, oh yeah. But I kept running and another setting I found myself in was, was right by some water and there was something dead there because my senses told me There's something dead. And so I had this contrast between something that's alive and vibrant and something that was dead. And both of those, it told me something about my surroundings that were there. A fragrance does that. In this case, this fragrance sends a singular message. The message is this. The king is conquered. It's a message that says the king is in charge. He is taking care of his enemies. His power and might are depicted in this procession. And the incense declares this truth. Clearly to all of the senses, what could be seen and what could be smelled. However, this message, though singular in its meaning, will be received differently depending on who's getting it. Those who are on the king's side will smell it differently than those who are those who are conquered. And that's what Paul gets at here. There's a, this message is received differently here. The king's rule and his reign, his sovereignty, the one over all circumstances who leads in triumphal procession with his great might, smells differently. And for Paul here, it's the nothing short of the knowledge of God. It's nothing short of God's reign and rule in Christ, that there's no circumstance that he's not controlled, no, cat, no enemies that he hasn't defeated, that he isn't in the process of. And Paul says in verse 16, as he writes here, he goes, this fragrance, which is the knowledge of God, this reality of his triumphal reign, to one, it's the fragrance of death to death, to the other, it's a fragrance of life to life one it's a fragrance of life it smells like life the, the the fact that he would be ruling that he would be in control that that our lives would be under his care and his rule it's life giving to others it's death it's a stench of death see the gospel the gospel declaring this message this truth of this king who's come divides all of humanity into two parts two groups of people Those who smell his rain and find it to be life-giving. Those who smell it and find it to be death. Who respond completely differently. Some are repelled by this. Some are repulsed by it. Some are hostile to the thought of anyone ruling over them. It's an awful smell. I will not be ruled by anyone. I will be the Lord of my life. I will not be taken in by anyone. I am the one that will rule and care for and take care of myself. I will not submit. I will not surrender to anyone, there's a poem. I'm not a lot into poetry, but I came across over the last little bit, and it's one you might be you might be familiar with. That captures this sense well of hostility to the reign of God, this reluctance to surrender to anyone. It's called Invictus, and in the in the movie, if you saw it, it's used a fair amount. William Ernest Henley is the the author. I'm going to read it for you. Um, Goes like this Out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance I have not winced or cried aloud, under the bludgeonings of chance my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. And this is the point. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And you see that. I find my soul to be unconquered. My head to be unbowed. I will be the master of my fate. I will be the captain of my own soul is the sentiment it captures. Well, those who look at God's reign and are hostile to it. I'll be ruled by no one. I will bow my knee, my head to no one. I'll be conquered by no one. Many of us in this room has have experienced that kind of resistance to the reign of God. Maybe even still now we are hostile to His rule, His reign. Surrender of any kind. I, will, I want to run my own life. I don't want to have to bow. I don't have to check in with anyone. I want to make my own decisions. I don't want to have to surrender to anyone. And yet, for many of us here, have come face to face with the hard reality that that is an empty attempt to find life. That to submit or surrender him is ultimately inevitable, either now or in eternity. And it's futile to resist his power and his reign. And some of us have come to the point where we find his rule, surrendered to him to be a desirable thing. It's something that we look at and welcome and receive it and invite him to bring his rule and reign to actually convince us that we need to bow the knee and conquer our soul. We want him to do that. We become so tired of trying to run our own lives, of atoning for our own sin, of being our own savior, of dealing with our own shame, our own guilt, of trying to order and control our own lives that we are ready for someone to come and to take over. Especially an infinitely good and powerful king who is reigning and will come and bring that gracious rule and reign into our lives. Even though our own nature fights against it, we know that he continually reminds us that it's the only place that our soul really can rest. The only place that we can rest is in and under his control as we sacrifice our lives as we surrender ultimately to him it's not a static place we all know that we know ultimately we're going to get there it's a, a process of in our lives of 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 learning that of, of of taking back control and then reminding being reminded on an ongoing basis oh no 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 i need to return that to him that's his and he's the only one truly can take care of that that surrender and submission is the place where we truly find life and rest there but the question is, we look at this passage and we we see the fragrance from death to death and we see the response of life to life and we sit here and many of us can go, golly, I, I'm pleased to have God rule over my life. And we go, but how did we get there? The, the dichotomy here, the, the question that hangs over this picture is, how is it that we can look at his reign and find it to be good? How is it that we can smell it and find it to be life-giving and not of death. How is it that we can look at that and say, we want him to be ruling over us and no one else, not even ourselves. How do we get to that point? Now, the answer to that question is much larger, but it's an important one for us because as we find ourselves there, we need to realize we didn't get ourselves there. It wasn't a decision that we made that brought us there. It was a work of God in our hearts to change and to transform us those who are hostile to God, hostile to Him in and of our own nature, that would see submission to Him as death, now to see it as life, to see it as something that's actually delightful and drawing and enticing towards Him, to want to give Him control of our lives as a work that He does within us. For those of us who find that triumph, this life-giving life, as you find your heart disposed to see that as a good thing, as you find your mind enjoying the thoughts of God and His rule and reign, as you find that you want to live more and more in that way, give thanks to Him. It's a picture of something that's, that's happened in your life, in my life, to go, wow, how did I get here? I didn't just decide to get here. Repentance is, isn't just something that happened upon me. It was something that came upon me. It was a kind of faculty that I'm inclined to have Sight to see, something to smell. Faculties here were activated to be able to truly smell the delight here, the beauty of Christ and his rule and reign. Our minds illuminated and opened to be able to see, and we can't claim credit for that. It's a fundamental reality that God comes and he breaks in upon those who are going to smell this and say, I want this. It's something that must happen within us. Augustine wrote, as the eyes depend upon light to be able to see anything so there can be no knowledge of anything prior to our light of divine revelation, God must break in and reveal the beauty and the fragrance of Christ, of his reign in our lives. Paul goes on to talk about those who are are dying later on in in chapter 4 of verse 3. He writes that even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They're blinded. The senses are, are kept from seeing God's glory. So if you can see, if you can smell, it's a result of what he has done. It's a fundamental work that he does in us to be able to find him to be Desirable. I had Dave, or asked Dave, to read the passage from John chapter 9 this morning of the man born blind that Jesus heals. And had him, asked him to end right at that point, even though the text goes on of that story and that account. And if you remember the very ending, the fundamental truth the blind man came to was this. The one thing I know is that though I was blind, now I see and even though I'm going to learn a lot more, the one fundamental truth upon which all other truth is built is that now I can see. And the fundamental truth of those who find Christ to be desirable is that we see, we can hear, we can smell, and all of a sudden there's something desirable, something that we want, that we desire there. And as we see that this, this um, smell actually draws us. It provides a place of rest for our hearts to know that the fragrance of his rule and reign in our lives is actually a place that we can rest. We can turn our lives over to him and know that he is the one who is in control. It reminds us of the environment which we're in. So the fragrance divides between two parts. We find ourselves hostile. We look to him for the change of heart. If We find ourselves to be desiring him. We thank him and we continue to pursue that. The second point as we look at the imagery here is this aroma. Because Paul shifts the imagery here. It's an aroma that points. The fragrance does divide, but the aroma here points, the the aroma points to the nature of the ministry, of gospel ministry. In verse 15, Paul shifts things here. He shifts the, the word from fragrance to aroma for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. It's a, it's a, it's a word shift. The Greek. It's different from fragrance to aroma. But here the imagery, as I mentioned before, it's different. It's not the, the processional with the incense. Now we have sacrificial imagery. It's the same kind of language in the Old Testament when a sacrifice would be offered and there would be a pleasing aroma to God in and through the sacrifice. It's the same picture that Paul says that we are the aroma for we are the aroma of Christ to God. This describes the very nature of the ministry of Jesus. That he was the aroma of sacrifice. And Paul is saying that now we are the aroma in and through our sacrifice, which follows after Christ. Follows his model of laying our lives down as he did. That this aroma is of Christ to God of sacrifice. And it reminds us that surrender and sacrifice are the basis in which this ministry happens. It's the means, the avenue through which this happens because Christ was the one who led the way. He is the one we follow. And so we have, we see in this a paradox of triumph. We see that, that it's in triumph comes through suffering. That victory comes through sacrifice. That power and strength come through weakness. And this is the picture that Paul is giving of gospel ministry, of living it out. That this triumph comes as we lay our lives down as Christ did, following after him. And then he clears the way. He sets the model for us. You see, it's interesting, as you read through the book, this letter, that one of the accusations that that the, the, those in Corinth had against him and certainly the, the other teachers that came in was that, wow, you know, you're the, the apostle of the Gentiles. You have a pretty significant status but what, I, what we don't understand is why it is that you're so susceptible to hardships. Why is it that you're always finding a way to get in trouble? Why is it that you're always getting beaten or having difficulties or being shipwrecked or being this or that? Why, why is that if you really have this status? And so Paul could have pulled away from that and, you know, emphasized other things. But in this letter, what he does, instead of hiding or kind of trying to minimize his hardships... He actually puts his hardships front and center before them. And he says, my hardships, my difficulties, the suffering that I've experienced, which demonstrates my surrender to this king, are marks of authenticity. They mark me as a true follower, a true one commissioned by him in and through my sacrifice. And we see that picture of our lives, that it's marked by that. The way it's seen, it's authenticated in and through difficulties. That the Christian life, we shouldn't be surprised, is full of them. As we follow Christ that's there. And, and, And essentially what Paul is saying here is this aroma of Christ to God, that as Christ looks at us, he smells his son. As he sees the sacrifice, the surrender of our lives, whatever that might be look like, small or large, doesn't matter. As we're taking steps and moving along that road of following Christ and surrendering our lives, he looks at us and he smells Christ because Christ was the model. He was the pattern as we follow. It's an aroma of Christ to him. In the ways that we'll lay our lives down, the ways that we will surrender, he smells his son. And it reminds us of the essence of gospel ministry is this that it's sacrificial, can't be anything but, because Christ set the model. You might remember on Paul's missionary journey, his first journey as he made his way through Antioch, Oconium, and Lystra, and, and Derby, and he makes his way back through. And he's, he's strengthened the churches. He's given them encouragement. And it says that he strengthened like this with this message. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That the very nature of the Christian life, of the very nature of, of living under this king's rule is tribulation, it's difficulties, it's challenges that are there. And we need... To be reminded that this, this aroma points up to God. It reminds us of the nature of this gospel ministry. But he goes on to say this aroma is among those who are perishing and those who are being saved. That the, the setting in which we live this out is in a context with people, these two different destinies. Those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Two different places and it reminds us of the truth that our lives matter. How we live matters most to God, but then in the context of others, it is an aroma that seed. It's in, the, in among those around us that the way we live and the way we suffer and the way we love and the way that we struggle and the way that we live and the way that we give and the way we sacrifice and the way we surrender, whatever that might look like, is a picture of this aroma of Christ. It's a picture to those around us of those who are being saved and those who are perishing. This great aroma also reminds us of this, that that our role is clear as we look at this. There's a great distinction here, a kind of freedom that comes. It's critical for us to get as we look at this. It's among, it's to God, it's among others, and it helps us get our role in this whole process of living out the gospel. It's toward God, and He sees whatever we bring to the table, whether anybody else does or not, and He sees and smells His Son as we do that, but it doesn't end there. In the midst of living out among those with one of two different destinies, this is what happens. They get a whiff, if you will, of our lives. Some ways it's good and it reinforces their destiny. It moves them along that course to being saved or to death. To those who are being saved or those who are perishing. They taste, they see that. You see, God has ordained that our ministry, our role is just that. It's not to save, it's not to condemn, it's to simply live out. In the presence of Him, representing His Son, laying our lives down insofar as we need to, as we can, as we're able, in our growth, and our maturity, in the circumstances that come, So we lay that down and to put Him on display. That it's not to save or to condemn, but it's to demonstrate him to a world around us. Among those who are being saved and those who are perishing, that brings great freedom for us. To know there's one audience that really matters. And those around me, I know that God will use my life in some way. That's the promise of this passage. It's it's just an indicative statement that we are the aroma to these groups. So the aroma which is the sacrifice of our lives in following Christ, points towards God, points to those around us. And it compels us. And it gives us great freedom. So the fragrance that divides gives us a kind of place to rest as he's tra- transformed us. This aroma reminds us that we're in the, it's in the context of those. And we live that out and it compels us. Now we want to final, get the final piece here of this. It's the king. See, front and center... Here of this message. We can talk about the fragrance in Roma, but those come out from the central character, the central controlling theme and image is the king that leads. The king here leads in triumphal procession. He leads everywhere and always. Says that he leads always and he spreads everywhere this fragrance of the knowledge of him. It's a king who leads in triumph. Now, I mentioned the triumphal procession earlier and some of the the aspects of that procession. What's interesting, the more I've studied and looked at this passage, is that the questions oftentimes is asked, where does Paul see himself in this procession? And and, and there's different kind of opinions on where does Paul see himself? And some will say, well, Paul certainly sees himself as a captive on his way to death. That's a good question. Explanation, But, there's, but there's, there's others as well that, that bear repeating as well. He might very well see himself as a captive. He also, we see in this train, in this procession, there are, are those who have been liberated of the, from the home country. So they're, they're, they're coming back from being enslaved and they're a part of this procession being liberated. And that's, that makes sense too. And there's another group that say, well, no, 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 it's not the captive or the liberated slave. It's actually the incense bearer. That he's the one that's in front bearing the incense for the king and declaring who he is. You go, well, that makes sense as well. And so there's a variety of ways to see where Paul sees himself in this procession. I wish I knew exactly which one it was, but it, I'm going to do the political thing and say it all seem pretty good to me. But the one clear piece of this that no one argues with, and that's who's the king? Who's in charge? Who is the triumphal king is God. We might find ourselves in different places in that procession, but there's no one that replaces his role, the one who leads always in triumph that's there and spreads everywhere the fragrance. And this is the the picture I want us to get around, our hands around, our heads around, to smell and to see it, that he always leads and that he everywhere spreads this truth. Because the implications of this for us are huge. They are significant. That, that we see this picture for us in and out of the circumstances of our lives, in and throughout the contours of history of the church and the cultural shifts and changes that are there. We need to capture this. Because for Paul, it, it held him, kept him fast, knowing this picture that Christ was triumphant. And no, no matter what circumstances look like, He is nonetheless there Many different trials that Paul underwent. Certainly the one here and as he is wrestling with what's going to be the outcome of the church in Corinth. As he's waiting in trust, does he go? Does he continue with this ministry there? Or does he go meet Titus in Macedonia? What should I do? What's the outcome of this church going to be like? You can follow him or go go back in his story and you find him beaten and left for dead in Lystra. And you go, is Christ really leading in triumph there? You can go forward in the, in the book of Acts and you find Him for two years in, in the Caesarea Philippi in jail because the governor couldn't figure out what to do with Him. There He sits in jail and you go, really? God's leading in triumph there while you sit in jail and you get to the end of Acts and there He is sitting for two years under house arrest? Really? He's leading in triumph even there? And for Paul, it was significant to see this transcendent truth and that it would mark his life no matter if he was getting beaten, no matter if people were responding to the gospel, no matter if he had much or he had little or he was shipwrecked or whatever he might find himself, to see this picture was always ubiquitously true to him. And as we consider our own lives in the church today, it's important for us. The church in America, if you've read much, the, the question is, will the next generation get the gospel? What will the millennials do? Will they receive it? How will they live it out? Will it be passed on in the West? What will happen to the church there? We look at the, the fabric of our culture changing in radical kinds of ways at a speed that we could have never imagined. The moral fabric literally kind of disintegrating beneath our feet. We wonder what's going to happen there in the midst of that moral failure after moral failure in the church. Statistics in the church that don't look any different than outside the church. And we ask the question, really, are you leading in triumph even in the midst of these realities, these truths that we see with our own eyes? We look at the church in the Middle East or in Northern Africa and the persecution, the targeting that they're receiving As they experience the affliction and the persecution in ways that we can't even imagine. And not to mention all those things, but beyond that, we look at our own lives, our own sin, our own failure. And we go, really? You're leading in triumph in my life? Are you really king? And I wonder at times if it's true. I look at my own head that refuses to bow. My own soul that refuses sometimes to be conquered by him. It's so resistant my own heart that's so hardened at times. And I go, are you really leading me? And he says, yes, I am in charge. I am leading in triumphal procession. And you need to see this picture of the king that leads always, no matter the circumstances, nothing will thwart the triumph of this king that leads. And he says that it also spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Always leads Spreads everywhere. I love this picture of spreading. This it really, it literally means to make, it make visible that which is invisible. It means to to spread it out in such a way to go. Okay, there it is. I can see it now. To take that which is invisible and to make it visible, to manifest the reality of this rule and reign. If you think about this fact that He is spreading the knowledge, the fragrance of the knowledge of Him through us. And you connect that with the theme of sacrifice and surrender. You realize that how is his reign, how is his gracious rule seen? How is it spread? How is it manifest? Through the challenges of our lives, the sacrifices of our lives, the surrender that we bring and and offer to him that's a pleasing aroma in him, that's in submission to him, that's the picture, that's how we're making visible his rule and reign. We embody that to the world around us. We give them a picture and spread this gospel in the way that we live there. And he says we spread it in every place. And certainly that's geographical. You go through the book of Acts, you see it spreading ethnically, geographically in every respect, moving from Jew to Gentile, moving from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. But it doesn't just move geographically. It moves in and through the different stations of our lives, the different situations in which we find ourselves. Each one of us are in a place in life. It's not physical or geographical. It's, there's, a, there's a real station that we are in. And in that place, His rule and His reign is being spread in and through the circumstance that we find ourselves. Everywhere, in every circumstance, whether we intended the circumstance that we find ourselves to be a part of our lives or not, whether we would have written it into our story or not, is irrelevant. God is there. He's spreading the knowledge, the fragrance of the knowledge of him in and through us. So everywhere we find ourselves is a place where these promises to spread this invisible reality of his reign is, is true. Is a promise for us. And so this rule and reign of the king, is, he, his triumphal procession is always and everywhere to spread this picture for us. But what does this offer us? What does this picture, this image of the triumphal procession offer us? Two things, hope and boldness. If you'll turn to 3.12, it might be on the same page of your Bibles, but of this book. Paul, continuing his thought in verse 12 of chapter 3, writes this, Since we have such hope, we are very bold. Since we have such hope, the hope of this one who leads us everywhere and always. Always spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him. We are bold. We can live this out in the world around us. We don't have to worry because it's not about us. We have one audience to be concerned with. It brings hope and it brings boldness. The message as we live it out in word and deed in our lives as we seek to grow, even in our ability to sacrifice and lay our lives down and, and say, Lord, help me. We have much money, time, resources, skills, God has to pry it out of our hands and we grow in the process of truly surrendering that to him in word and deed. And as we do that, it brings pleasure to him. It's an aroma that him to him that smells of his son. And it impacts the world around us. It has an effect upon the world around us. And as I've kind of worked through this passage this week and, and thought about my own life, the question that I to wrestle with is do I really believe one? that we have a king who is triumphally proceeding throughout history, throughout my life, throughout the contours of history in this church, each one of our lives. Do I really believe that? Do I really believe as I live that out, seek to offer my life as a sacrifice to him, that he will use that? That doesn't return void, that that is not in vain, that is not wasted, there is no sacrifice, there is no surrender that is wasted to this king. Do I really believe that truth... And in addition to that, do I really believe that there are people around me, around us, who are waiting for that message, who are sick and tired of trying to make their lives work, sick and tired of their unconquerable soul, sick and tired of trying to find life in places where there is no life, such that they are ready for a message of one who will come in and offer life to them who will take over their lives and demonstrate truly what it means to be alive. Do we really believe that? Well, I confess my own unbelief. I confess that somehow, even though I've heard story after story and in my own life has bore that out, I don't believe that others really will are looking for that. They're waiting for that. Maybe not immediately, but over the course of time, will find that message to be as well sweet, enjoyable, delightful, Welcoming, irresistible to them. I find that my own life, I confess that I just, there's times I just don't care, that I'm afraid of what others might think, afraid of my own failure that's there. But I need eyes to see. We all need eyes to see. What would that look like? What would that look like for us to, as we live in the sacrifice, for Him to use me, to use us, to use His people who have been conquered? Who are now this aroma to a world around them, as he leads. I'd love to say back to my Hungary story in in um, in Budapest. That summer in 1988, I I was thinking I was looking at pictures of individuals. I know of I know of nothing that's happened since then. I don't. I would love to be able to tell you a story that now this person's a you know the head of this church or or that church or this or that. I don't know anything of what happened. I was going to try to make something up. I can't even make something up because I don't know. I don't know what happened as a result of those six weeks of talking with people about the gospel and just even helping give a foundation to the, the basis of why you would believe in a God and why the material world isn't all that there is and that this man, Jesus, that came to die for their sin. But the beauty of that, I don't have to make that stuff up. We know that God is at work there. The beauty is I look at this picture as I look at this account... There's a confidence we can have, that I can have, that this aroma was spread, that it was a fragrance of death to death and life to life, that it was this aroma, first and foremost, was a pleasing smell to God as Christ, as a, as a part of investing that summer. But it was among those who were being saved and among those who were perishing. And that message in that time was a, a part of ushering, reinforcing that message in the lives Of those who are there. We have great hope. That as we live that out. This king leads us. And there will be an impact of our lives to him. As well as to those around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you. That you have led us so well. Thanks for this picture of the triumphant king. Help make visible to us. Even in the lives of others. That you do rule and reign. Father, would you enable us to, to live this out, that our lives would be a fragrant offering to you and to others around us. Give us eyes to see the needs that are there. Give us boldness. Give us courage. Give us hope, that, that a hope such that we can't help but talk and communicate in word and deed to those around us. And we pray that you would be glorified. We pray that, This gospel would be spread, that others would come to know and to find this fragrance to be a delightful, desirable fragrance of you. Do that in our lives. We need you to do that because we can't do it on our own. We confess.